for the wisdom, the discernment, the beauty of it, the solidity of it. And as we read through the Psalms, we, we realize there is just so much richness there for us. And that you went to great lengths to put it out there for us. And so we pray that we would ingest it well and that it would inform us and change us and transform us. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when we look at the um, percentages of the world's wealth in dollars by country, <laughs> the United States is by far the leader with holding 31.5% of the world's wealth. Um, coming second is China at 18%. And then we quickly drop down to two-digit numbers um, with Japan at 5.5%. And then it goes down from there. All of North America together is 34% of the world's wealth. Uh, so you think about how much America eats up of that, all right, in the United States. All of Europe, with a population 200 million more people than North America, is at 23% of the world's wealth. Asia Pacific as a whole is at 18%. Latin America at 2.7%. Africa is at 1.3%. And it goes on and on. Uh, if we measure by the gross uh, domestic product, the GDP, which you may, may or may not know, is the total market value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country. The United States leads at 24%, China at 15%, Japan at 6%, and then it keeps going. Uh, clearly, this country is extremely wealthy, much more than others, right? And this overwhelming wealth, if you were my age, you know, or uh, a little older, you know, we, we remembered growing up in the me generation of the 90s. Um, at that time, there was a bumper sticker that was very popular, which read, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Everybody had that stuck in their Porsche, right? And then uh, another bumper sticker rose, you know, to counter that one that said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> and um, if you saw, and I'm, I'm not... I'm, I was on vacation, so I'm not up on the latest on this, but we had a brush with the possibility of a quick death with Damar Hamlin, right? Um, I, does anybody know how he's doing? He's in recovery, right? He's doing well, right? And, you know, he was the safety for the Buffalo Bills, collapsed on the field a few weeks ago uh, from a cardiac arrest at the age of 25, if I added his years up correctly. Um, so I think he's in recovery, uh, you know, and, but it did remind us of all of us of how precious life is and how quickly it might be taken from us uh, as we watch that. So we see this strong, fit young man who has, who has it all. He's living the American dream of, of many American males, collapses on the field in an instant, and in that mo moment, nobody knew if he was going to recover. It doesn't matter really how much or how little money you make, right, or how great your life is, eventually we all die. I hate to tell you that. And when you're gone, right, so is the, all that money that you spent your life working to, you know, accumulate. And uh, many verses in Proverbs deal with this issue of money, one of which is Proverbs 16, 16, which says, how much better to get wisdom than gold. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get insight rather than silver? To get insight rather than silver. So here's the question for you. What is your life's goal, 
right? Is it really better to get wisdom rather than gold? Would you agree with that statement? Because if Jesus appeared before us with a a billion-dollar lottery ticket in one hand and all the wisdom of God in the other, which one would you choose? Many would probably grab the lottery ticket, walk away, and never look back. And obviously, Jesus is not going to show up and present that choice to us, uh, but wisdom does dictate with, that with wealth or poverty, there come unique temptations in that, right? Can you be wealthy and still have wisdom? Of course you can. Solomon, David, many others throughout history have done that. It's just a matter of what you really desire more in life, what captures you, right, to what your heart is really drawn. But in this world of constant temptation and deception, we do need our reminders as the people of God, don't we? And Proverbs 11.4 reminds us this way, saying, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Because you cannot buy yourself out of the death scenario, can you? Not at all. In Survivor, if you ever, my wife has me watching Survivor, uh, this TV show where these contestants are put on, you know, on a remote island and they're giving, given only rice and water to eat, basically, and if they want something else, they've got to forage or fish for it, right? And the game lasts about 39 days, and so people get very hungry. They lose a lot of weight. Maybe I should go on the show. But sometimes Jeff, the host, gives them all $500. You, you'd be familiar with this if you watch the show. Gives each of them $500, and he holds a little auction on the beach and that largely consists of foods that they would want, right, after weeks of being out there. And for those starving contestants, it's absolutely overwhelming, right? And they get so excited trying to, like, outbid each other for a, a steak and a beer or, you know, fried chicken and iced tea or whatever it is, some yummy dish that's presented to them. But they also know that Jeff will usually auction off a clue to a hidden immunity idol, right? Something that they can use at the next tribal council, that place when they might otherwise be voted off the game by the other contestants. They can use that for immunity. Nothing, none of the votes will count against them, so they can stay in the game. And in season 28, there's a cop named Tony, and he's starving, right? And Tony is playing hard at this game. And at the auction, everybody's bidding like crazy on this food that's being presented, like steaks and all these different things. And he just sits quietly. And everybody's saying, Tony, what's wrong with you? Aren't you starving? Get in on this. But he had already told us in a sidebar interview on camera that he didn't care about the short-term benefit of a meal. He's going to hold out for that clue. He's going to wait for that clue. He's going to use his whole $500 for that clue. He's looking at the end game, right? The end of the game. That the clue is worth more than some immediate gratification of satisfying his temporary hunger. And due to his willingness to make such difficult decisions, Tony, in the end, won the... Well, sorry, I just spoiled it for you. But he won the game and he he walked away with a million dollars. 
But you look at that and you know, you see that the wise know that he who dies with the most toys still dies. And then we all face judgment, don't we? Immediate gratification is not worth eternity. That life's only a small glimpse of eternity, right? A drop in an infinite ocean of time. So to just pursue wealth in the temporary moment is to sacrifice eternal joy and eternal peace if that's the only thing, if that's your only goal in life. Wealth rots, it burns up, it disintegrates, it rusts, it's spent, or it's taken from you. The ancient Egyptians, we all knew, we grew up and taught this in school, that would, would bury their pharaohs with treasures in their, in their little uh, um, tombs or whatever, with the belief that they could enjoy them in the afterlife. But all those things have been pilfered by robbers and archaeologists over the years. The truth is that when you're dead, you're dead, and none of that has any use anymore. We've all bought a car, a new car, which looks so nice, so good. You're, you're so proud of that car sitting in your driveway when you bring it home. You're so you know, enamored by it. But... We all have that feeling that when the, uh, the miles add up, there's more wear and tear, scratches and dents accumulate, money is spent on further maintenance. That precious car, once your pride and joy, uh, will lose its luster and it will eventually just be replaced with the next best thing. My kids, thankfully, are better than me with money. Thank God. <laughs> My son Aiden, for example, buys the absolute cheapest car he can. Um, he refuses to put money into it except for gas and whatever he has to do to get it inspected every year. And then he runs it into the ground and he sells it for scrap for quite a, you know, almost what he paid for it. Or he miraculously turns around and sells it for what he paid for it. I can't believe it. He's never paid more than $500 for a car. I applaud him for that. Wisdom does not trust in wealth which comes and goes and then is finally useless at death. It knows only righteousness takes us beyond the grave. The pursuit of justification, right, which is just another word for salvation, and sanctification, another word for transformation in our lives, that, that justification and that sanctification in Christ is the only route to attain that righteousness which brings, which brings us to, into everlasting life. Wisdom, for the Christian, looks to the end game, knowing that righteousness can't be obtained in any other way than through Christ. Jesus is our immunity idol, so to speak, when it comes to sin and death and when we sit at that final judgment, we pra practice uh, largely self-denial now in order to gain him for eternity. His righteousness, when we, when we repent of our sin and, and place our faith in him, his righteousness covers us, absolutely covers us. And so now when God the Father looks on us, he sees the perfect righteous record of Jesus, which conquers sin and death in our lives. It brings immunity, and we go on to eternity. Proverbs reveals being wise with our money means we value hard work, as seen in Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. 
Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. The wise don't have to be cajoled into work, right? They enjoy productive activity. We are created in the image of God. And part of being created in that image, it means that we are in turn creators. We are makers. We are workers. And whether we're recreating the same thing over and over again on an assembly line in some factory somewhere, we're creating a fresh lawn by mowing it, or we're creating solutions in an IT environment, in some office someplace, when we work, we reflect the divine nature of Christ out into the world. There's a great dignity in work whatever work it may be that you're involved in. The wisdom in Proverbs teaches us that it's better to be wise than to be rich. And it's important work. It's important to work uh, for the money that we receive. Proverbs also teaches us the blessings we receive in whatever form aren't meant to be sort of hoarded away for our own private enjoyment. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says this, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I remember Kim and I were missionaries in Indonesia, and I remember walking into the humble homes of Indonesia and sitting on a mat covering a dirt floor or a cement floor, and the wife would magically appear with all these little finger foods and coffee and tea and only the best for her guests, right? No matter how poor she was. And I, didn't, I knew they didn't have much. I, I realized that and I quickly learned that it was very customary to bring something to contribute when you visit in order to replenish what you're eating. And as I grew fam- familiar with a certain village uh, where we became very close with people, I also noticed that those in that village who freely shared with others, showed care in their generosity with others, had that reciprocated from the rest of the village to a great degree. At harvest time, they had help. People spoke highly of them. And when one of their family members passed away, the village would emerge and take on all the financial and logistical burdens for that family while they mourned. When we show that we're generous, With what God has provided for us, we are witnesses to the truth of words, the words in Proverbs 11. Parents often have to deal with children who won't share, right? If you have kids, you know that that feeling. And the result is sibling rivalry, kids getting angry with each other, and parents tired of constantly sort of scolding them. But when we can teach our children to share their toys or whatever it is, Then they show healthy relationship with others and with their possessions, and then peace is found in that house. It's a very different household. Our ability to share our money is a measure of godly wisdom accumulated in our lives. That that deserves a second reading. Our ability to share our money is a measure of the godly wisdom that is accumulated in our lives. We find the wisdom found in Scripture to be practical, very practical, and to have profound implications on our relationships. People actually get along better when they don't hoard, right? When, they, when they're generous and they have a sharing attitude. 
Everybody likes a giver. One way we think about one way we can think about our money uh, relates to how we treat our workers or the people that we work with, and how we hold companies accountable to their treatment. And instead of greed, we should uphold human dignity in the workplace. Abigail Disney is the great niece of Walt Disney. Her grandfather was Roy Disney. Uh, older brother to Walt and co-founder of the Disney Company. And in a TED Talk, she speaks about her principles or about the principles her grandfather uh, taught her as she was growing up, about his warning uh, when she went to Disneyland to visit. She was told not to sass the other employees just because she was his granddaughter. And he would say, these people work really hard, harder than you can imagine, and they deserve your respect. Right? She also remembers her willingness or his willingness to pick up litter, always saying to her, No one is too good to pick up a piece of garbage. The CEO, right? And within the same that same ethos, that same attitude was a company born which paid a decent wage, which enabled workers to provide for their families, have health care, get a home, stuff like that, and retire with some security. Rather than hoarding wealth, at that time, the company treated their workers ethically, something Abigail argues has drastically changed in her, the, the company that bears her name. She says that there's so much to learn from the simple integrity of how my grandfather saw his job as CEO. Behind every theme park and every stuffed animal, a handful of principles governed everything. Every single person deserved respect and dignity no one's too good to pick up a, a piece of garbage. However, that seems to have changed in the work world. My father worked for J&J for 40 years. Here's a couple of pictures of my kids <laughs> when they were little. For 40 years, he worked for them. And he worked from the bottom to becoming the CFO of the consumer companies. He was very loyal to that company, and they were very loyal to him in return. He worked hard, and they worked for hard for him. Many companies, though, it seems, now put transaction above interaction, partly because all, a lot of the checks and balances have been changed, and partly because the workforce has changed. We talked a little bit about that last week. And everyone's culpable, employer and, and employee alike. Not one person, not any one person, CEO, or dishwasher, or whatever, is either totally guilty or totally innocent. Many now treat others with a disregard to their humanity. But Christians, Christians in the workplace, can make a difference with a healthy witness at work displayed in our attitudes and our actions towards others. We can't take our money with us, right? We all know that, but we can leave a legacy of respect and care for other people around us. Like Roy Disney, we can own our moral obligation to others with whom we work. We can value interaction over transaction, person over profit in ever, whatever we're working at. A wise approach to money recognizes how important it is to put God first in our sharing as well. Proverbs 3 verse 9 states, Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. We honor him first, not last. 
with whatever he has blessed us with, right? And the result impacts the kingdom and it echoes out into eternity. First fruits is a biblical term referring to the first yield of the crop that comes in. And we don't obviously live in a great agrarian society right now, yet it, I don't think any of you are farmers, yet it still applies to us, right? God deserves the first fruits of our income, sacrificing something already given by God to us, to Him first, not last, not as an afterthought, and not begrudgingly, but with joy. Now, for some, this means giving God a tithe of 10 or some other percent off the top of their income. For others, that might mean starting with a smaller percentage and then growing it over time. The point is not legalism, right? But a reminder of where our money and our possessions come from and putting God first as we grow in giving. I should just say right now, some of you have a large family. You know, the things have been tight. God's not sitting there scowling at you if you're not giving 10%. If you need to hold on to stuff to pay some bills, God's not sneering at you, that's for sure. Neither am I as pastor. But outside of those Proverbs, the New Testament speaks on this issue more than any other, identifying its importance in our lives. I mean, much of what we are is about money, right? Matthew 6 is a great reminder to us of how we should regard money in relationship to God and relationship to others. It speaks of our care for the needy, of not drawing attention to ourselves in our giving, nor also in our public prayer life. We could spend a day or more talking just about that chapter. But verses 19 through 24 have a very poignant message for us this morning Uh, from Jesus in regards to where we find our treasure. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal, right? So think again about that precious car, your precious house, or that wonderful Christmas present you got, right? Think about how much you desire certain things. Think about where your desire is placed. Is it in pursuit of Christ's righteousness and wisdom in this world, or is it in in things which are subject, really, to disintegration? Wisdom dictates the former is the only choice worth making, the end game, right? Why? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question is, is your heart in disintegration or reintegration, right? Devolving away from wisdom and righteousness or being reintegrated into the character of Christ through wise giving and the pursuit of himself. Jesus continues in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Where do you place your gaze? What are you looking at? What captures your eye? Are we looking at life in, healthy, in a healthy way, desirous of things that actually bring life to ourselves and to others? 
valuing others as Christ does? Do we look at people as transactions instead of valuing the interactions with them? Do we look at people as only avenues to get what we want from them? Are your eyes focused on the earth, in other words, or up to heaven and its eternal nature? There's a reason we are admonished to look up over and over in Scripture, right? It's because the things which capture your eyes down here also capture your heart. They really do. But when our gaze is on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, we gain the right focus on the world below our feet. Things don't control us. Because Jesus finishes this section in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. True that. The love of money is truly the root of all kinds of evil, as the scriptures tell us. The gospel never leaves us room to split affinities, does it? It's all or nothing with Jesus. Love, you know, character, righteousness, faith, wisdom, things like that cannot walk hand in hand with the sin of greed. The sin of greed is the fly in the ointment. It makes it useless. I had a friend once, he and his wife, both had very good jobs, very high-paying jobs, never bought expensive cars, never spent a whole lot of money on travel or anything like this. They only did house repairs if they absolutely had to do it. As a matter of fact, the township made them do it once because it was a health hazard, a safety hazard at their house. They had plenty of money. I knew them really well. But every time they went out, or he and I went out, he would conveniently uh, leave his wallet at home. And he wouldn't tell you this until the check came. And if he, you know, and he would never pay you back, right? And if he needed the money and asked me, I would be happy to have given it, but he, he didn't. He didn't need the money. And as a result, other people around him noticed this as well. And people started to dislike him, and no one was willing to help him ever. And his friendships just dwindled over the years. That's sad. Don't be that guy, right? Wisdom really calls out into the streets to anyone that has ears to hear who's willing to hear. And she says, make Christ's righteousness your life's goal. Make Jesus your central life's goal. Value godly wisdom above worldly wealth. Generosity benefits you. Refresh others whenever you can. Have a healthy attitude towards money. Give God the first fruits of, your, of all your labor. Don't try to serve two masters. Instead, look up to Jesus always and not down at the ground. So do something this week. Take a new step this week. Put this into practice. Give something to someone who needs it. Pay for somebody's groceries in the checkout line at the grocery store. Drop a check in the mail just because. Pay somebody's dinner bill at the next table if you can. Prayerfully evaluate your tithing and ask God what percentage he would have you at, not you, and then stretch yourself to do it. And be a blessing. Don't just take, 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 but give back and be generous. Amen?
Money's always a heavy one, right? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your words on all issues, but definitely on this one. We want to be people that reflect you in our heart of giving, in generosity, in practical outpourings of love that the Proverbs really direct us towards. So we pray that this, this word that we read on these pages, we would actually regard it as you speaking to us. Your words coming into our ears, filtering down through our minds to our hearts and changing who we are. We ask that people around us would see us as generous, giving, loving people. And that we would put our trust and our faith in you and not in our bank accounts, not in our possessions, not in what we can get out of this world. We praise you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that all of this is yours anyway, and we want to view it that way. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.